0: Does anybody want to read chapter 17, 1 through seven? All right. Thanks, Una. And who wants to read uh, eight verses eight through sixteen? Yes, I can I can do that. Thank you, sir. And Una, you wanna start for us? Then all the congregation of the sons
1: of Israel, many five David from the wilderness of them, according to the command of Yahweh, and the camp of Geratim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you cast Yahweh? That the people thirst there for water. And they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to better put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst? So Moses cried out to Yahweh, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Ask before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. And take in your hand, your staff, with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before Dad. you there on the rock that hailed it, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it. Then the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he named the place Martha and Meribah because of the contending of the sons of Israel. And
2: because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? And the Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites. at repeatedly, Moses said to Joshua, Choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua thought the Amalekites, as Moses had ordered, and Moses, Aaron, and her went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. Aaron and her held his hand his hands up, one on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this on a straw as something to be remembered. And make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, The Lord is my banner. He said, Because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, the Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Thank you.
0: Thank you. So it hasn't been too long ago when, where we were in chapter 14, and uh, that's when uh, Israel uh, escaped from Egypt. They crossed the Red Sea miraculously. Chapter 14 is when God, as the Egyptian army followed Israel into the Red Sea, where they were crushed. As God uh, you know, c- collapsed the walls of water around them, the Egyptian army was decimated. And then right after that, you see uh, chapter 15, Moses singing the song of deliverance, of celebration, that same song of redemption is is found in Revelation as God rescues his people of final time, of final exodus. And then from about the end of chapter 15 until now, until this chapter, uh, is the record of uh, Israel traveling to Mount Sinai and of course, we you know, it's, at, it's on Mount Sinai where Moses and Israel re- will, re- will receive the law. And there's a theological um, um, point being established in these three chapters, 15 through 17, as Israel travels to Mount Sinai. And that theological point that's being made is the, is the nature of the law, that before they receive the law, God has to prepare Israel to receive the law. He needs to teach Israel what the law is about. What are they to do with the law? What is the purpose of the law? Uh, Israel needs to be clear about what the law is for, what they are to do with it, and what is the law's purpose. So chapter 17 will conclude this theme of the nature and the purpose of the law for Israel and even for us. It's the conclusion of what the law does and how... Uh, it chapter 17 really kind of solidifies everything. It ties up all the maybe loose ends. It makes it really crystal clear about uh, the law's purpose. And so I got two points today. And uh, point number one is Israel's test. Israel's test, uh, verses 1 through 7, and then Israel's role. Israel's role, 8 through 16. Let's look at uh, verses 1 through 7, Israel's test. And... Uh, Here they find themselves at uh, Rephidim, and uh, this is really important because uh, Rephidim is very close to Mount Sinai. And if you've been here long enough, you'll know that uh, the, the geography in Scripture is yes, it's historical and factual, but it also geography in the Bible makes theological points. It makes. It makes a theological uh, 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 references. And so um, the point of this of, of Rephidim is, is that what happens in chapter 17, since Rephidim is right next to Mount Sinai, what happens in this chapter is establishing the, the reputation of Mount Sinai. Uh, what is Mount Sinai, where Israel received the law, what is it about? What is it about? Um, and what we're going to see is that, and what we're going to see is that the law is going to is going to is supposed to teach the people that everyone is sinful without exce- without exception. The law is going to uh, is going to show us the law. The law is the the purpose of the law is to show that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's why verse 1 says, look at verse 1, it says, of all the congregation of the sons of Israel. All the congregation of the sons of Israel. Why, why the emphasis on the all and everybody? Well, it's to make the point that, that what we learn about the law is for everybody without exception. The law is for everybody. It's for Israel. It's for the world. Even though Israel will be the first people to receive the law, make no make no mistake about it. That the extent of the laws of, of what the law points out about people applies to everybody. It applies to everybody. That everybody is sinful, right? All the congregation of the sons of Israel, and and that wasn't um, the first time. Um, God uh, uh, used this description of Israel. Uh, look at chapter 16 verse 1 if you forgot uh, th- uh, chapter 16 verse 1 then they set out for Elim and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of sin verse two and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron right um, Everyone, everyone this is a, what, what, what's what's being established in chapter 17 is a universal principle. It's a universal truth that all men are sinners. And the law shows that. The law shows that all men are sinners. And so, uh, go to Romans 3. and and, and Go to Romans 3. and, And Paul says just that. Paul says just that. See, where did Paul get Romans 3... Three from. Go to Romans 3 9. What then? Are we better? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. And the poison of asps is under the lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before the eyes. And we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are in the law. So that every mouth should, may be shut and all the world may be accountable to God because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight for through the law comes the knowledge of sin how did Paul know that that the law charges everyone with sin he read Exodus 16 and 17 he understood the contents of Exodus 16 and 17 and that what the law shows applies to everybody every single person Um, so we go to verse two and it says, therefore, the people contended with Moses and and the idea behind this phrase, the people contended with Moses is the, is kind of the idea of somebody being sued. This is like an, an informal court of law. Uh, they're, they're saying that, you know, Moses, you, you owe us something. They're, they're suing Moses for damages they think Moses is inferior to them, right? Uh, I've been in uh, you know situations where the church will get mad and and I'm called into the room with all these angry church people, and it feels like I'm in court. It feels like I'm on trial. People are making charges. You know, there's a prosecutor, there's one person represented to them. And this is what Moses was experiencing. This is what Moses felt. And he and he says that the people say in verse two Give us water. Uh, Moses, you owe us water. And and and, and then you, you see their, their pride, right? You see their pride and their arrogance that they're sitting against. Hey, he's back. They're sitting against God and Moses. And so on verse 2, Moses says to them, Why do you contend with me? Uh, there's some there's some seats right there if you want to okay. uh, go.
1: Oh, oh, okay, it's it fine. It's fine.
0: Um, so uh, Moses says to them, "Why do you contend with me? Why do you why do you why do you test Yahweh? Uh, why am I on trial? So instead of um, God testing sinners." Instead of the law, you know, the law testing centers, Israel is trying to turn the tables on God. They're trying to test God instead. They're attempting to trade places with God. They're saying, God, you know, you're not God; we're God. They're they're telling God that, hey, God, you need to do a better job at, at being God to us. They're telling God, listen, we're we're thirsty. We're not going to be patient. We're not going to wait for you. You need to operate on our timetable, not we on yours. And so what does the law reveal about our sinfulness? What do we we see in verse 2? What specifically about our sinfulness does the law reveal? In what way are, are we sinners? We want to be God. We want to be God. We want to charge God. We want to charge, we want to drag God into court. We want to be the judge. We want to be the jury. We want to pronounce God guilty. That's the nature of our sinfulness. See, this is the purpose of the law. This is what the law is pointing to. This is what the law shows. It shows what exactly our sinfulness looks like. And our sinfulness is full of arrogant pride satanic pride where we want to be in charge where we want to be supreme where we think God owes us we think God serves us this is what the law will reveal about Israel and about humanity that's the nature of our sinfulness that the God that, that the law reveals but in verse 3 we see the degree of our sinfulness just uh, just how sinful we are of uh, the, the law is going the law reveals just how reprobate Israel uh, uh, is and this is what they say in verse 3 can you believe it the people thirsted for water they grumbled against Moses and said why now have you brought us up from egypt to put us and our children and our livestock to death with thirst. Why is this such a evil question? Why is this such a, a crazy question? They yeah, uh they
1: intention
0: Yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, yeah, sure. But they're saying that, um, you know, he intentionally led us out to do specifically what? He intentionally brought us out from Egypt to do intentionally what? Uh, He led us out of Egypt to do specifically what? (laughs) Specifically what? (laughs) Uh, more specific. Who, 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 who do they think God is trying to kill? The children, and the children and our livestock. Now how do we know for sure that's not true? That he did not... Intentionally lead 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 us out of Egypt to kill our children and our livestock. How do we know that's absolutely not true?
1: Okay,
2: okay. And his promises. I think there were promises delivered when Moses mobilized, addressed.
0: The leaders of Israel, he told them God has something in mind for you. Okay, Another yeah. Line. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he made those general promises sure. But did he kill some children back in Egypt? Someone else did. Did he kill some children? could God kill some children? He did.
1: He did. He, did.
0: he, did. he killed the Egyptian children. And he did not kill the Jewish children, right? But he made a distinction there. Did God kill some livestock during those ten plagues? Plague number five. He killed the Egyptian livestock. Look at, Listen to Exodus 9, verse 6. Plague number five. So Yahweh did this thing on the next day, and all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. Not a single one died. So we know for certain that God wouldn't lead Israel out of Egypt to kill their children and their livestock when in Egypt, he specifically protected their children and their livestock. I mean, that's crazy. So they think that God of Israel is the very opposite of who he is, right? The opposite story is true. He's going to save their children. He's going to save their livestock, right? I mean, this is how sinful we are. Like we're so sinful, we have it backwards. Like we we see the opposite of who God is. We're blind as bats. We call good evil, and we call we call evil good. Now, look at our society today. Look at our culture today. We call the evil of homosexuality and premarital sex and transgenderism, we call all of that good. But are we surprised about that kind of sinfulness? No. Because we've read read Exodus 17. This is the nature of sin. The law has already taught us about our sinfulness how bad we are, how backwards that we get it, right? We're, we're not more sinful now than Egypt was thousands of years ago. Now, God is just lifting the restraints, lifting the restraints of his common grace. And Romans 1 says that this is a sign of what we're seeing of, of God judging America, right? We're under the judgment of God. Because we've always been this sinful. We've always called evil good and good evil. Now God is just restraining that and showing everyone this is who we really are. Now, verse, verse 4. Moses cried out to Yahweh saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will they will stone me. We have this violent mob, this angry mob. They want to kill Moses. If it were possible, they would kill God too, and the law exposes all of that. The law shows us that we're we're murderers, right? And it's Israel think Israel is trying to test God, but it's really God who's testing Israel and showing this is what the law exposes. And what the law exposes is that we are complete moral and spiritual failures. Um, verse five, Moses. Yahweh said to Moses, uh, "Pass before the people." You remember that word? Where did you see that word "pass before"? In the Passover, right? When he passed over his people in Egypt, and he spared them, and he passed through the the children of the children of, uh, the, the children of well, he passed over uh, passed over the children of Israel. He passed through the children of Egypt and he killed them. And so God. There's another Passover. Um, they should be killed, right? <laughs> Israel deserves to die right now. Right now. But God, what? He passes over them again. He, Moses, pass over the people and take with you the, sum, the elders of Israel and take in your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Um, the staff is a symbol of God's presence and his power. The Nile is when, God, when Moses first struck that staff, when he first initiated this redemption from Egypt. And instead of Israel receiving judgment, God is going to give them the water. He's going to save them. He's going to give them life. So the law shows us how sinful we are, and the law points the way to salvation. It points the way to the water. It points the way to life. Number six. Behold, behold! I will stand before you there on um, uh, on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the strike the rock, and the water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so on the side of the elders of Israel. Uh, anybody know where Horeb is? It's another name for what? Exodus three one. Uh, Moses was pasturing the flock of Jethro, his father in law, the priest of Midian, and he led to the flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And what's another name for the mountain of God? Mount Sinai, right? So, um. um oh, man. Sorry. Um, so they're standing before. They're at the base of the mount. They're, they're at the, the base of, the, the, of, of Mount Sinai, and God is establishing. Mount Sinai's reputation, he's establishing um, uh, the reputation of the law that they will receive on Sinai, and so why do you think they need to strike the rock, why do you think the rock needs, the, the, the water needs to come out of the rock at the base of Mount Sinai, why do you think that needs to happen? Remember, if God and Mo, if God and Moses writing this—they're establishing Mount Sinai's reputation. What the reputation? What what Sinai's all about? What the law is all about? What the law is all about? Then, so why is it so important that this water that saves them comes out of the out of the rock at the base of Mount Sinai? Why is it so important?
2: Like the association between the water, God. Yeah.
0: Yeah. To show that the the repu- Mount, Mount Sinai's reputation is that it it points to life. It points to life. It will point to how we will find life. But it but the mountain isn't the fulfillment of God's promises. Mount Sinai and the law isn't the the final resting place. And how do we know that? Verse 7. Name the place Masa, that means tester, and Meribah, that means contender, right? Because of the contending of the sons of Israel, verse 7, and because they tested Yahweh, saying, Is Yahweh among us or not? See, Sinai will have will, will have all of this as its reputation. This is the the law's reputation. It shows that Israel and, and humanity constantly test God, that they're constantly contending, but that God is is still faithful. And yet Sinai isn't um, isn't the final mountain. The law isn't the final fulfiller. That's going to be Mount Zion. That's going to be you know. That's going to be. Uh, you know, uh, someone that's going to come into the future. So, remember the order of what we talked about, of of these uh, particular objects that establish the nature of the law, the nature of God's plan. Uh, in Exodus 16, um, Moses wrote about bread, right? The manna, the manna. In Exodus 17, he... He wrote about water, right? And then, where do you see that order? Do you remember? Do you remember see that that order where you find um, you find bread in one chapter, then you find water in the next chapter? Does that sound familiar to you? That order, bread and water, bread and water in the New Testament. Yeah. So in John six. Jesus says, "I am the bread of life." In John seven, he talks about water. If anyone is thirsty, let let him come to me to drink, right? And so Moses he records this. He names this place Massa and Meribah, and it says he uh, uh, he, he this is this is a uh, this will be for for generations. Verse sixteen. He builds this altar for generations to remember so that when Jesus comes in John 6 and John 7, it should be this, oh, okay. I I remember this story before. I remember this story. Uh, The law reveals our sinfulness. The law through the bread and water points to life. And now Jesus comes and says, I'm the bread. Uh, I'm the I'm the water, right? And then you also see uh, here, it says, verse 2, chapter 17, verse 2, why do you test Yahweh, right? Why do you test Yahweh? Israel was testing Yahweh. And then David, the king of Israel, he, 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 he goes to the wilderness, and he tests God too. He fails in the wilderness, because remember how did how did David fail in the wilderness? He cut Saul's robe, and yes, he didn't kill him, but remember what David felt? He felt guilty for cutting the robe. He felt guilty. His conscience convicted him of sin. He failed in the wilderness, and so you fast forward a thousand years, and Jesus is back in the wilderness, and he and Satan is tempting him, and. What Jesus says to Satan ties this entire theme of testing all together. What does he say to Satan that ties all of this testing theme together? Remember what he says? You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. I'm not going to test the Lord. Jesus in the wilderness does what Israel couldn't do. Jesus in the wilderness does what David failed to do. Jesus is the bread of life. He's the water of life. He is the, he is the fulfiller of all of God's promises because he doesn't fail. And he doesn't fail because he's the God-man. He's the God-man. And that's a big difference. There's a big difference if you're a God-man and a man. I was talking to my friend Mustafa uh, yesterday and he was trying to say, you know, the Quran and the Bible, they, they, they say the same, basically the same thing. And I said, well, <laughs> they say similar things, but there are big differences. Like, the Quran says Jesus is a prophet, and the Bible says Jesus is God. That's a big difference. Well, hey, it's a big difference, right? It's a big difference. Because Jesus is the Son of God, he fails where every sinner before him he doesn't fail where every sinner before him does does fail. So as the church, we're the we're the proof of the hope of a second Exodus. See, every time we practice the Lord's Supper, which is a it's like a what? It's a it's a it's a Passover 2.0. It's a Passover it's Passover 2.0. And we're we're telling the world as we as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that God is going to rescue his people. God is going to bring his people to the promised land. And, and and the church is the evidence to Israel of that reality. So that's the nature of the law. That's the nature of the law. So let's go to point number two, Israel's role in the world. So we, we see the, the point number one was Israel's test And point number two is Israel's role in the world. Uh, Verse eight, then Amalek came, Amalek, who's Amalek? Does anybody know who Amalek is? We saw him in Genesis 36, go to Genesis 36 and see for yourself. Uh, Timnah was a concubine of Esau's son, uh, Eliphaz, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. So Amalek is Esau's grandson. So this is like what? This is like Jacob versus Esau 2.0. This is like part two, all over again. You um, we, we see the Amalekites uh, throughout scripture Um. They, they were. Um, what what was so um, kind of unique about them was they they were able to 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 use the the camel uh, with uh, with a great degree of effectiveness. Camels are in short distances are actually faster than horses. They can go about forty five miles per hour. Uh, uh, go to judges six thirty five and. Uh, is 635 we'll actually go to uh, Six uh, thirty-three, and you see, uh, uh, Midianites and the Amalekites. How they—they're part of uh, uh, their raid on Gideon. They're fighting uh, Gideon. Um, go to go to Numbers. Go to Numbers real quick. Numbers twenty-four twenty. We see the Amalekites, uh, we see the, 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 the resultant curse of what happens here, and then he looked at Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first of the nations, but his end shall be destruction. So the, the Amalekites, they're, uh, they're, gonna, they're, they're making a, a big mistake. They're making a big mistake in their attack on Israel. Go to verse 9. Um, what do you notice about this army in verse 9? Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will take my stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. What do you notice about this army? No, these are shepherds, they're farmers. And uh, how how long do they get to prepare? One day, right? One day. (laughs) You think you can raise and train an army in one day? Uh, No, that's not going to happen. But where do they go? Where are they told to go? On the top of the hill, verse 9, with the staff of God in my hand. Right? That's what Moses is going to do. I'm going to go on on the top of the... uh, Well, the men are going to go out, they're going to fight against Amalek. That's what they're going to do. But Moses says to Joshua, I, on the other hand... Tomorrow, as the men go out and, and, and are basically have no chance against the Amalekites, I on the other hand, I'm going to take my stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. Um, he's going to go on the, to the top of Mount Sinai and uh, what does the staff of God represent? God's power and God's presence. And so, God is establishing Mount Sinai's reputation here again. That Mount Sinai is going to be significant to the world. It's on Mount Sinai where people will see God. Verse 10, um, Joshua did as Moses told him to fight against Amalek. So Moses, Aaron, and Hur went, went to the top of the hill Israel's leaders go to the top of Mount Sinai and in this in this first battle in the Exodus in their journey the world will learn about God the world is going to learn about who God is Israel is going to learn about God so verse 10 as they go up on this hill with God's staff on his hands we see Israel's role Israel's role, is to display God's power and God's presence to the world. Verse 11. So it happened when Je- Moses raised his hand up, and he the staff is in his hand, that Israel prevailed, and when he let his hand down, Amalek prevailed. So what is verse 11 teaching us? What is it teaching us? God is fighting. Yeah, God is the one fighting, Yeah. So it's not teaching us about prayer, it's not teaching, that's not the point of this, it's not about our, our prayer life, it's that what, this is God's war, that God is going to fight for Israel, that if, if Israel is going to win, God is the one who needs to do, do this, and the world needs to know this, they need to see Mount Sinai and see God work and fight for Israel, Israel needs to know this. Um, God is the only one who can give them victory. Israel, they don't even know how to pick up a sword at this point. I'm like, What's this? Is this a sword? Is this a spear? How do I use this? Verse 12. Uh, Moses' hands were heavy. Moses' hands were heavy. Uh, where did we see that word before? What do your translations say, by the way? Daniel. Okay, okay, okay. Anybody else? Heavy. heavy, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, glory, yeah, we saw that. So whenever Moses' hands were were heavy and whenever they lowered it, it would it would reduce God's glory. Because the Amalekites would start winning. And whenever they lifted up his hands, it would show God's glory. <coughs> So what they ended up doing, they, then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And then Aaron and and, and Ur supported his hands, one on one side and one one on the other. Thus, his hands were steady until the sun set. That word "steady" means faithfulness, right? God's gonna all—I mean, God is gonna be faithful to Israel. Israel will always struggle with their faithfulness to God, but God, God to them, will be always be faithful. And so, look at verse thirteen. So Joshua, by the way, this is Joshua's uh, uh, first mention in Exodus. It's the same Joshua of, of the book of Joshua. So Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. So this is this is how Israel launches itself to the world. World meet Israel. World meet Israel's God. This pathetic army. Wins how? Because of Moses raising his hands with God's staff, symbolizing God's power and God's presence. And what does it teach us about those who curse Israel? Verse 13. Verse 14. They will be cursed. Right? Right in this book, verse 14, as a memorial and recited in Joshua's hearings, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. World, take notice. You can either be on God's side and receive blessing, or you can be against God and his people and be cursed. That is the lesson of Amalek. That is the warning to the world. Hey world, look at the Amalekites. Look what I'm going to do to them. You can either be on my side or you can be on God's side. This is a this is a shot across the bow. Right? If you oppose Yahweh verse 14, you will be you will be blotted out as well. Go to 1 Samuel, go to 1 Samuel 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, Yahweh sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. So now obey the voice of the words of Yahweh. Thus says Yahweh of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and def- devote to destruction all that he has, and do not spare him, but put to death both man and women, infant and nursing baby, ox and sheep. Caval and donkey, right? Total, blot them out. And Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And, and Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. And, 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 and Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. You showed loving kindness to all the sons of Israel when they came out from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites So Saul struck the Amalekites from Hebelot as you go to Shur, which is the east of Egypt. And he seized Agag, the king of uh, Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the lambs, and all that was good, and they were not willing to devote them to destruction. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroy. Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel saying, I regret that I made Saul king for he has turned back from, from following me and has not established my words. And Samuel became angry. And so go down a few verses. And he comes to uh, uh, Samuel says in verse 14, What then is the sound of, of the sheep in my ears and the sound of oxen which I am hearing? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to to sacrifice to Yahweh our God, but the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, wait, and let me tell you what Yahweh spoke to me last night, and he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, is it true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the heads of the tribes of Israel, and Yahweh anointed you king over Israel, and Yahweh sent you on a mission, and said, go and uh, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against fight against them until they are consumed? Why then did you not obey the voice of Yahweh, but rushed upon the spoil, and did what was evil in the eyes of Yahweh? Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh, and, and, and went on the way in which Yahweh sent me, and I brought back Agag the kingdom of Amalek, and have devoted the Amalek to destruction. With the people who took some of the spoil, the sheep, oxen, the choicest things, and to sacrifice the Yahweh your God at Gilgal. Right? Saul is, is not repenting. He's not admitting his sin then Samuel says, you know, to obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. You go down for a, a, a few rows, a few a, rows, a few verses, and then you go to verse 32. <laughs> Samuel says, bring Agag near to me, the king of the Amalekites. And they, Agag came to him and changed, and Agag said, surely the bitter of death has departed. But Samuel said... As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among them. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before Yahweh at Gilgal. So Saul not only disobeyed God, what else did it show? His actions. By not totally blotting out the Amalekites. What did it show about Saul? He wasn't on God's side. He wasn't on God's side. He was on the other side. And then you go to Esther. So remember Agag? Remember Agag is the, uh, the king of the Amalekites. And so the Agagites are the descendants of... Those are the, It's the same word for the Amalekites, the, the Agagites. And this is uh, during the uh, the Babylonian exile. Esther. And remember... Uh, Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. And here you have Esther and her uncle Mordecai. They're from, the, they're from the tribe of Benjamin as well. And look at chapter 3, verse 1. After these things, King Ahasuerus magnified Taman, the son of Hammedatha, the who? The Agagite. He's here again. And he wants to destroy Israel again. It doesn't seem to change. Um, And this Agagite creates uh, this plan, this this plot to kill them. Um, But God intercedes. And, And what do they do? Chapter 9, verse 5, it's reversed. Um, the, the Israelites are allowed to kill their enemies. And they struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and causing them to perish. Um, so he kills He kills Agad, he kills uh, the Agadites, What does it show you? That God remembers, right? That God's faithful to his word. He keeps his promise by killing the Malachites. God never forgets his promise. He'll either be the God of salvation or the God of judgment for both Jews and Gentiles. Go back to uh, Exodus, Exodus 17. Verse 15. He built Moses built an altar altar and named it Yahweh is my banner. Banner is a flag, right? Our banners show what? Uh well, our flag, the United States flag, fifty states in union with each other, fifty stars, was it thirteen strikes, right? The initial initial colonies representing freedom. Israel's flag is Yahweh. Um, America is about freedom and liberty, Israel is about Yahweh, to show Yahweh to show Yahweh's glory verse 16 because he has sworn with a hand upon the throne of Yah, Yahweh will have war against Amalek from generation to generation Yahweh will always be warring against Amalek for what they did to Israel In, in Saul's time in the Babylonian exile, in Esther's time um, God will curse those who curse Israel, and so this uh, this war against Amalek it shows that God's plan is a, is he has a he has an international agenda he has a global plan. He has a global plan. What happens in Exodus against the Amalekites has global implications, global ramifications. It's not just this story written thousands of years ago about these, these people with no significance to the rest of us. No, this, is, this has a global historical future impact.